On October the 31st, more than 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, wherein he hoped, through debate, to clarify Scripture's supreme authority. Nearly every year, on the last Sunday in October, I remind you of this event. And in the words of the Apostle Peter, it's no trouble for me to remind you of these things again. One of Luther's goals in nailing the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel was to instigate a debate on the abusive practices of selling indulgences, which was a monetary form of penance. In the Reformation, there were two principal issues that were hotly contested, and to some degree, the sale of indulgences really encapsulated these two issues. Often they are identified the formal cause and the material cause of the Protestant Reformation. The formal cause is the the, the main issue that everyone was arguing about, and that was Scripture's authority. The material cause was the issue driving the whole debate along, and that has to do with uh, merit and how we're justified in the sight of God. You can think of the the formal cause and the material cause a bit like uh, a muscle car. Uh, The the material cause is the the engine inside the car, giving it power and driving it along. Uh, The formal cause, the scripture, is the the body of the car, and it's the thing that's going to hit you first when it comes down the road. Well, the the fight over indulgence, as I said, encapsulates both the formal cause and the material cause of the Reformation. So when it came to indulgences, if you paid a little cash, you could be given excess merit from previous saints and so secure your salvation. That's the material cause peeking through. Now, no doubt my my Roman Catholic friends would howl at that description of indulgences, but it cannot be too far from the truth, for a celebrity preacher went town to town uh, singing a little jingle. Johann Tetzel uh, went about singing, When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. He had other jingles, too, uh, like, like this one. Place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open, and in strolls mum. By what, by what authority could Tetzel make such a promise? It wasn't the authority of Scripture, the formal cause of the Reformation. Martin Luther and subsequent Protestants argued that Tetzel and the Roman Catholic Church's promises were contrary to the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons us of all of our sin and He accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that's imputed to us, it's credited to us. And we receive that not by placing our penny on the drum, but by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now, if you, if you don't believe that this is still a live issue, indulgences and authority, you're wrong, to put it frankly. Um, In 2009, Pope Benedict authorized the sale of indulgences. In 2016, Pope Francis did so too. And they did so because they believed that they had the authority to do it. In 1546, at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church officially condemned and cursed any who say that indulgences are useless or that the Church does not have the power, the authority, to grant them. The Roman Catholic Church has never abandoned the Councils of Trent put forth in 1546. So today, I stand before you as one condemned and cursed by the Roman Catholic Church. And yet, I rejoice because I also stand before you as one who is accepted and beloved by God for believing that my only hope in life and in death is that I belong body 
and soul to my faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins. And He's bought me with His precious blood. No further payment is needed. Jesus paid it all. And all to Him we owe. At a most basic level, did the Roman Catholic Church have the authority to sell indulgences? What if the Scriptures contradicted the Roman Catholic Church's authority? In fact, the Scriptures did and do contradict Rome's claim. God's Word, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, teaches that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's not of our doing, but a gift of God. So, who had and has authority, the final say for the people of God on earth? The Roman Catholic Church claimed that the Pope had authority, the Church had authority over the Scriptures. But Luther and subsequent Protestants claimed that the Word of God was the final authority for God's people. The only supreme and sovereign authority which can demand our unconditional obedience is the supreme and sovereign God. And the only place that He has revealed what we ought to do and believe is found in His Scriptures. And this, this the, the formal cause, we could say, of the Protestant Reformation is what we're thinking about today in this topical sermon on Scripture. We'll look at Scripture's authority, Scripture's aim, and Scripture's application. Those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And you can find uh, an outline provided as well in your, your bulletin. And here's the main thing that I want you to take away from those three points. That God has given us an authoritative word about Christ so that we might be Christ-like. God has given us an authoritative word. He's spoken authoritatively. So Scripture's authority about Christ... Jesus is Scripture's aim, so that we might be Christ-like. We'll be thinking about Scripture's application. So let's begin with our first point, Scripture's authority. And if you would turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 to 17. It's going to be our, our base text, as it were. So we think about the doctrine of Scripture. It's on page 996 of the Bibles provided. This passage, as I said it shows us Scripture's authority, its aim, and its application. And I want to persuade you, whether or not you're a follower of Jesus this morning, though I would encourage you to be a follower of Jesus, I want to call you to be a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you, persuade you, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that the Bible should be the supreme and sovereign authority in your life. It should be the supreme and sovereign authority in your life because it is the very word of the supreme and sovereign God. We are about to read a portion of a letter from the Apostle Paul. These are some of his last words to a young pastor named Timothy, who's possibly in his 30s at this time. And notice what he tells Timothy about Scripture. Read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see there, Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God. 
And the scripture that Paul has in mind is, is both the Old Testament and the emerging New Testament. In his first letter, Paul actually quote, quoted from Luke's gospel, showing us that, that Paul believes that the, the scriptures that he has in mind are, are larger than just the Old Testament text. And the apostle Peter, as you may know, he even quotes Paul, or he even refers to Paul in saying that his writings are, are part of the scriptures as well. Uh, how we get our, um, our final canon of 66 books is a, a subject uh, for an, another time. But the main point that I wish to make now is that Clearly, a consensus among what constitutes Scripture was emerging among Christ's apostles very early in the history of the church. That consensus included the Old Testament, the writings of the apostles, and those closely associated with them. Again, Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And that, that phrase, breathed out by God, is captured in the Greek word theonoustos. And though sometimes translated God-inspired, it literally means God expired. And that's, of course, what you do when you speak. We've learned a lot about that these days, haven't we? When you expel or expire air, you, you speak. This word, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, are the Word of God. They're the only certain rule of faith and obedience. And so the Apostle Peter tells us, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. And this is why uh, the great Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield, said that what Scripture says, God says. You see, when we receive this book as the supreme and sovereign authority in our lives, we receive it because it comes from the supreme and sovereign God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 13, Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. While there were many authors, human authors of Scripture, while they exerted real human agency in their authorship, while their personalities shine through as they write, God the Holy Spirit worked in and through them and their words to deliver the written Word of the triune God. This is what Peter told the early church in Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter's point is plain. David penned Psalm 41, which predicted Judas' betrayal. David penned that prediction because the Holy Spirit spoke and wrote through him. And connect that paradigm to our text, to 2 Timothy. This letter from Paul, 2 Timothy, is truly a letter from Paul. And as truly as it is a letter from Paul, it is also truly a letter from the Holy Spirit of God. The source of the Bible's authority is none other than its divine author. The Bible is God's word to us. And we should treasure it and treat it and trust it like no other word. Consider what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John Chapter 5, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. In our everyday experience, we receive the testimony of fallen men, and we allow their words to have a kind of authority in our lives. And in many ways, this is good and right. Authority shows itself not only in reception and listening, but also in reaction, particularly in obedience. 
So for example, we rely on fallen and flawed people every day. We rely on mechanics that tell us that our brake pads, they're wearing thin and that we should change them. Uh, we rely on doctors that tell us we have an infection we cannot see. And so we take medication for that end. We rely on their testimony. And that's good and right and appropriate. We should change our brake pads. We should start taking our medicine. We rely on the testimony of fallen and flawed men. And if we rely on their testimony, how much more should we rely on God's testimony? And how much more should we rely on the testimony of the one true God who has never told a lie because he cannot lie? And if we should do what the doctor says and what the mechanic says, then we should absolutely do what the author of Scripture says, the author of the universe, the author of our own lives. The author should have authority. Scripture's authority should know no bounds in our lives. It must reign supreme. God's word has the final say in our individual lives, in our life together as a church. It has the final say in the, the workplace, in intellectual life, in science, philosophy, law, politics, arts, culture, commerce, and entertainment. Scripture's authority is supreme. And we must make an important clarifying point. To say that Scripture's authority is supreme does not mean that other authorities of individuals and institutions and, and impulses in our lives should be rejected or removed. No, our God has ordained earthly authority. And He has ordained that they should be servants of His will. So, parents are proper authorities. And they should be obeyed. Bosses are proper authorities. And they should exercise their authority in accordance with God's will and way. And so should parents. And they should be obeyed insofar as they do. Church elders are proper authorities. And they should exercise their authority in accordance with God's will and way. And they should be obeyed insofar as they do. Governing rulers are proper authorities. And they should exercise their authority in accordance with God's will and way. My, my point here is, is this. The, the supremacy of God's authority in His Word does not destroy good, right, and proper earthly authority. In, in fact, it sustains it. Moreover, authority instituted by God ought to be obeyed insofar as it adheres to the Word of God. Sometimes, we've learned, Christians will have to disobey these other lesser authorities when they command us to do what God forbids, or when they forbid us to do what God commands in His Word. This is part of how we show that God's authority really is supreme and reigns supreme in our lives. That's part of how we show the world that we worship and serve the one true God and that Jesus really is the Lord of all. But we've got to be honest, full obedience to God's authority has long been a challenge in our world. Think back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. The, the crisis in the garden was a crisis of authority. Whose word, whose will, whose way would reign supreme, man's or God's? The, the moment that Adam ate of the fruit, contrary to God's command and against God's authority, he determined, Adam determined, that his will and his way would reign supreme. Precious little about man's tendency to challenge God's authority had changed by the time that Paul wrote his letter to Timothy. Timothy and all Christians would need a word, a divine word, to analyze and address these challenges. In fact, if you move your eyes over the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll see that Paul promises difficulty in Timothy's days and that people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, 
arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Well, we live in a day that's not too dissimilar from Timothy's. If we believe that this issue of authority is not a live issue in our day, then we need to examine our own hearts and how we've lived even this past week. We need to examine uh, the actions uh, and the words of even others in our world. Just consider the events of this past week when it was reported that the present Pope was in favor of legalizing same-sex unions. Now, some may demur that same-sex unions have nothing to do with marriage and what God has revealed about His will and way concerning marriage. But if I may be frank, I think that's naive and short-sighted. Moreover, think about it. A major figurehead of a world institution is giving his personal endorsement, putting the weight of his formal office, using his voice to commend sin. In other words, he's trying to assert authority and thereby persuade others to adopt his view and act in light of it. But there are other challenges to the Bible's authority in our present day. There are impulses and institutions in our lives which try to assert authority, encourage others to adopt their viewpoint and, and act in light of it. Various streams of, of culture do this. Uh, academia does this. The, the media, print, social, and screen does this. Social scientists, politicians, think tanks, and courts often assert authority, encouraging us to adopt a point of view and act in accordance with the viewpoint that's been put forth. We, however are seeing from God's word that we must be bound by the book and by the God who wrote it through his apostles and prophets. Uh, another challenge to the Bible's authority is a little closer to home. It's our, our own pride. Uh, a brother in the congregation pointed this out to me, uh, and I want to try and distill some of his helpful thoughts here, though these, uh, the responsibility for these remarks are my own and not his. Um, we are tempted to believe that we know so much more now than people did in the past. We take the Bible as our, our starting point, and yet too often it, it does not function as the final authority. It sheds light, but this technological advance or, or this medical advance really brings home the bacon and tells us what we ought to do. But the God in heaven, he... He laughs at our, our pride. Our God in heaven laughs at our pride as if he couldn't see the end, the beginning from the end or the end from the beginning. He, he sees it all. He knows all of time, all the time, at every point in time. This is his world. We reveal a, a good bit of chronological snobbery if we think uh, that we know so much more about faithfulness to God's word and God's world than our brothers and sisters did in the first century. And yet another challenge to the Bible's supremacy in our lives is Google. That's right, I said it, and somebody's Alexa probably recorded it. Um, really, uh, by Google, I, I mean the ability to have seemingly endless information at our fingertips. What should we do about problem X or predicament Y? I know, ask Google. We like quick and easy answers. But what if the Bible gave us wisdom from above? And what if it took time to digest that wisdom, develop categories of discernment and discipline to deploy God's wisdom in our everyday lives? In fact, it does take that kind of work. 
In the face of these challenges, it's clear to me that if, if anything, we need more of the Bible's authority in our lives as Christians and as a church, and not less. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, reminds us that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in His being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This God, He has spoken an authoritative word, and His people should listen and obey. Well, having considered Scripture's authority, we should turn and consider Scripture's aim. Remember, God has given us an authoritative word about Christ so that we might be Christ-like. God has given us an authoritative word, Scripture's authority, about Christ. Christ is Scripture's aim. Set your eyes again on 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we consider Scripture's aim. And read verses 14 and 15 again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. At the risk of oversimplification, Scripture is about Christ and life in Him. Scripture is about Christ and life in Him. If we, if we may put it like this, the central aim of Scripture is to, in the words of verse 15, make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's Scripture's aim, to reveal salvation in Christ. And I, I want to unpack that just a little bit, but I can't help but first make a comment on verse, um, on verse 14. Paul, you see there in verse 14, he reminds Timothy that he has learned the truth of Scripture from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And here he encourages Timothy to hold fast to and continue in what these dear sisters in the Lord had taught him. All week long, I've been praying for our congregation to continue in the faith, to hold on to what we firmly believe. Let's pray that for one another. Let's pray that we would remain faithful to Christ all the way to the end. He loved us to the end, and we ought to love Him to the end. And if I may say a word to the mothers and grandmothers gathered here with us this morning, then I'd like to say this. Sisters, take great comfort. Take great comfort, encouragement, and hope from Lois and Eunice. Our great God was so pleased to uniquely use these women to teach a young boy the Scriptures and to raise him up as a pastor for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't grow weary in teaching your children or your grandchildren about the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep lovingly pressing upon them the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit might be pleased to do something remarkable in our midst. Our God, He, he uses means and he might just be pleased to use you to raise up the next generation of ministers and missionaries for Jesus Christ. Sisters, the, the next great movement of ministers and missionaries might not begin in a seminary or at a conference of theology. But in your homes, where you equate your children and your grandchildren with the sacred writings of the sovereign God. Sisters, give yourself to this work. And this will be, by God's grace, Work that has lasting significance and power for God's glory. And children, youth, young adults, when your mothers or grandmothers, your fathers or grandfathers open the Bible and read it to you, then know, you need to know, that they are imparting to you a gift. They are endeavoring to commend the grace of the eternal God to you. Don't refuse the Bible teaching of your parents or grandparents. Rather, receive the word of God 
with joy. Receive it for what it is, the very Word of God. They're reading and teaching you about this world, about the sovereign God, about your sin and His saving love revealed in Jesus Christ. This is Scripture's central aim, to communicate God's gracious salvation to us in Jesus Christ. The the Scriptures, the, the sacred writings as Paul refers to them here, by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. To use the words of our church's statement of faith, we believe that the Bible, the Holy Bible, was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, that it has God for its author and salvation for its end. The Scriptures, from beginning to end, are about the triune God and the salvation offered to us through Jesus Christ. In the Scriptures, old and new, we learn that God's love for sinners is redemptive and it's relentless. He continues to pursue us in His love. He pursues us. He purchases us. And He presents us to the King of love, to Jesus as His bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And and here is where the people of God must remember that though we are being presented as a bride adorned for her husband, to use the, the words of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, the husband is actually the focus of the Bible. Jesus is the focus of the Bible. Paul makes Jesus the focus of the Scriptures there in verse 15. And the Scriptures, they're able to make one wiser salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures do not save us, but the Savior whom they present does. Jesus Himself revealed that He was the center of the Scriptures. When in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he declared to disbelieving disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, a summary of the Scriptures, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Scriptures are about the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know the Scripture's message about Him. The the Bible teaches us that God made the world and everything in it. That He is holy, just, and good. That He made us in His image to love Him, serve Him, worship Him. But we, just like Adam and Eve, our first parents, we've rebelled against God. We've turned and gone our own way. We've gone astray. We've listened to our own word rather than God's word. And God spoke to the first man and the first woman after they had sinned, and He promised them that He would send a son who would crush the head of the serpent who misled them, who would crush the head of the serpent who now even accuses the people of God. And Jesus did come. He's promised in the Old Testament Scriptures, in prophets like Isaiah. We're told that the servant of the Lord would come and that He would bring good news to the poor. And we are those poor. We're we're spiritually bankrupt before God. We cannot pay the debt that we owe to Him due to our sin. And yet the Lord Jesus came. He lived a perfectly righteous life, the life that we've not lived, life of perfect obedience to God and His law and His word. And Jesus, He gave up His life and His death on the cross, dying for sinners like us. Jesus remained in the grave, except on the third day, He got up from the grave to show His victory and power over sin and death. And that He can offer eternal life to those who turn from their sin And place their faith in Him. This is the message of the Bible. And Jesus calls all of us to turn from our sin. 
and to place our faith in Him. And friend, I, I want you to hear this message from the Scriptures themselves. So, so listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. He says in Isaiah 53, 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Jesus said about His own ministry in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. In Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Peter preaches this message. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. A friend, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is what the scriptures proclaim. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Consider the love of God that the scriptures proclaim in Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's good news to us. And Jesus is at the center of the scriptures, calling us, calling all who are weary and heavy laden, who are bound down by sin and misery, to come in him, to come to him, and to be set free and to find rest for your weary soul. Come and find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the scriptures proclaim to you. This is what they call you to do. To come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But the scriptures, they also have a complementary aspect to this central way. The scriptures are about Jesus Christ and they're about life in Him. They reveal the way of sanctification in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8 verse 29, the Apostle Paul tells us that we have been saved in order that we might be conformed to the image of the Savior. In short, that we're saved that we might be sanctified and one day glorified. In the Bible, we have everything that we need. Everything that we need for life and godliness, Peter says in 2 Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And this is the complementary goal of Scripture. Having been brought to salvation in Christ, another complementary aim of Scripture is to bring us to greater godliness in Christ. In other words, the scriptures teach us that Christ delights in us and it teaches us what duties we owe to him. The Bible shows us the way of God's grace in Jesus Christ and it shows us the ways in which we ought to be on guard against sin. And it guides us in the way that pleases God. Or righteousness. It guides us in the way of righteousness to use a word that Paul uses in verse 16 of our text. Which leads to my third and final point. Scripture's application. God has given us an authoritative word, Scripture's authority, about Christ. Christ is the aim of Scripture's and life in Him. So that we might be like Christ. Scripture's application should lead to Christ-likeness. So return with me again to, to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and read especially verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Note that this God-breathed word is a profitable word. And it's not just for something, not just for many things, but for everything that a believer needs in order to live and please God. That word profitable there in verse 16 has connotations of being useful 
being a help and an aid, a, a benefit, really with the aim of accomplishing a goal or an objective. Now, various objectives are then laid out there. You see teaching, reproving, correcting, and training. And before we unpack those words, we need to appreciate that one little word there. Uh, and that's that word there at the beginning of verse 16, all. Uh, which scriptures are useful to us? All of them. All of them. Now, as a congregation, we're in the midst of a, a New Testament reading challenge where we're reading through the New Testament from September through the end of the year. That's our goal. And we should complete that challenge and we should keep reading. Once we get to the end, we might be wise to start again at the beginning. If all of Scripture has been given by God, then surely we should read all of it and know all of it. We need all of it. For He has not given us useless parts. God has not given us useless parts. Leviticus, not useless. It's very, very useful. Uh, the genealogy in Chronicles, it's not useless. It's very, very useful. God is not a God who wastes His breath. Our God took time to write it, and we should take time to read it. All Scripture is useful for all of life. Our familiarity with all of Scripture will surely serve us. It will give us light in this dark world. He gave us this light so that we might be like Christ, the light of the world. If we are facing some conundrum in this world, then somewhere in this word, we will find clarifying truth to help us. All of Scripture should be read and studied. And all of Scripture should be taught. As a pastor, Timothy was called especially to teach. That's what elders are especially called to do, to teach God's people, God's word. And Timothy, he would employ the scriptures to instruct God's people to observe all that the Lord Jesus has commanded. And though this teaching occurs in a, a distinctive way in the pastoral office, in his great commission, Jesus clearly thinks that all of his disciples ought to be teaching others to observe what Jesus commanded. Disciples are called to be making disciples who make more disciples. And as Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Christian, you can be confident. You can be confident that with the scriptures, you have everything you need to teach someone everything they need to know about Jesus and following him. The application of scripture will come more naturally as we absorb it, or as Paul says, as we allow it to dwell in us richly. But the Bible, Paul tells us, it's also useful for reproving. Reproving is announcing what wrong has been done. And this term actually implies that it can be proven that the wrongdoing has been done. Our world and our hearts don't like reproving. We certainly don't like to receive reproving. Our world and our hearts are filled with idolatry and injustice, and so... Sadly, we regularly need reproving. And yet, this is the mercy of God to us. Here's the great news. God knows how to identify idolatry and injustice better than anyone else in the universe. What's more, in the Bible, God has given us the only infallible analytical tool that can adequately demarcate, describe, define, determine, deconstruct, and denounce idolatry and injustice as it deserves to be denounced. Before we use any fallible and fallen human tool or theory to deconstruct our world, let's use the heavenly tool that our God has given us, 
Let's use our Bibles. It gives us the truth about such matters from God's perspective. The Bible is also useful for correcting. Correcting, it's similar to reproving. Correcting has ethical undertones of uh, seeking to reform a previous fault. Say you're, you're driving down the road and you drift into the lane. Correcting is pulling the, the wheel back, right? That's what Paul has in mind. You're correcting your error. It's a course correction. And we should be careful uh, not to adopt unhelpful or unbiblical categories of correction. Our world, uh, some folks in our world may use a term like dysfunction when the Bible would use the term disobedient. Uh, our world, some in our world might use a term like recovery when the Bible would use the term repentance. Uh, moreover, our world might like for us to validate some particular feelings or emotions when the Word of God might call for us to vanquish them as sinful grumbling and complaining. Sometimes our world might like to obscure those things which God has made very clear. And the truth is, sometimes in our own sinful and fallen condition, we want to find people to tell us what our itching ears want to hear because we really loathe reproving and correction. Or we don't think we need to be corrected, but encouraged in a belief. Uh, take, for example, how some psychologists have been employed to further the transgendered movement. The premise of the transgendered movement is simply this, that our feelings are the highest authority in our lives, even higher than Scripture, and so we must obey them. Some might feel as though they are the opposite sex that God has given them, instead of joyfully accepting God's gift of either being made male or female. Instead of bowing to general revelation and the revelation of God's word, feelings are made the highest authority. And persons are encouraged to submit to those feelings rather than God. And so rebellion against the living God ensues by validating and affirming a transgendered lifestyle. But the truth is, is that our feelings can be wrong. They're not an infallible guide. In fact, the Bible plainly tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need to have our consciences and our feelings shaped by God's word. We need our affections aligned with God's authoritative word. And the Bible is useful for correcting sins. And since I've gone ahead and opened up a whole can of worms by mentioning psychologists, let me just put one more worm on the hook while we're at it, shall we? Uh, let's grant that psycho psychiatrists and psychologists are helpful. In fact, in my more than 12 years of ministry, I have often encouraged a, a number of people to see a Christian psychiatrist or psychologist. And by God's grace, they, they've often been a help. Praise the Lord for that. Even if we involve a clinician, that does not mean that God's word should be exiled from correction. You see, where there is one issue, even if it's a, a biological and bodily matter, there's often a whole host of other issues. And usually, a number of them are spiritual. We are psychosomatic, body and soul unities. And while we might address the body from one vantage point, that doesn't mean that we should lay aside what God has given us to correct the soul. Because the two often actually interact and impact one another. Help in the bodily strength can help in spiritual strength. Say you struggle with insomnia and you don't sleep a whole lot. If your sleeping improves, that can actually help your spiritual life a whole lot. It helps with clarity of thinking. But just as help in the bodily life 
uh, can help spiritual matters, so help in spiritual life can also help in bodily matters by God's grace. Just because someone is receiving clinical help, it doesn't mean they don't need the correcting help of the Bible. We all need correction of, from God's Word because we're all sinners and we all need to be sanctified. In fact, if God's Word isn't regularly reproving or correcting us, then that might be cause for alarm. If God's Word isn't regularly reproving or correcting us, that might be cause for alarm. If our consciences are always clear and never being corrected or recalibrated according to God's Word, then that might be cause for alarm. As Paul says, the Bible is a gift to us for training in righteousness. The imagery of training is uh, that of inculcating habits. Uh, usually preachers and commentators, when they get to this word, they like to use uh, working out as an example. I don't like working out, so I'll use another one. Uh, think of it as, as moving in the grain and moving in the grain of a piece of wood and carving out a, a, a hole, as it were. And as you continue in that path of righteousness over and over again, practicing God's righteousness over and over again, you're settled more and more into God's way. Can you think of a more useful gift from our God? He gives us wisdom in His Word. He teaches us what is true. He helps us to see what is wrong. He corrects us when we sin. And He trains us to walk in the right path, in righteousness. God wants His Word to be the supreme resource that we return to for inculcating righteous habits which reflect His righteous character. Christian, let's put this word to work. Memorize it and meditate on it. Meet with others to read it. Make sure you talk about it every time you see another Christian. And I mean that, like every time you see another Christian. Try to make your way to it when you talk with somebody who's not a Christian. How can I bring Jesus into this conversation? How can I bring some truth of God's word into this conversation. We actually need God's word on our minds when we're talking with our unbelieving friends and family. Now, this word, it trains us, and we should be using it to train others. After every sermon, let me encourage you to find some nugget in the, the text of Scripture that we have looked at together. Find some truth in the text of Scripture and purpose to have a conversation about it with another Christian before you leave here. In this way, we're actually training each other. I love it that so many of you will stand around after the service and talk for nearly an hour sometimes. And that is but a small way of continuing the training that we've received together here in this worship service, surrounded and focused on God's Word. And I praise the Lord for that. I pray that you would keep at it. Our God has given us a complete Word. He has not left out anything that we might need. In, in verse 17, we learn that God has given us all of Scripture so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that word for complete has connotations of fully furnished. Think of renting an apartment or a home that is fully furnished. It has everything you need from couches to beds to dishes to towels to artwork to soap for the dishwasher and toothpaste. Anything that you think you could need, it has. And even those things which you didn't realize you needed, it also has. It has everything you need. That's what God's Word is like. It has everything you think you need and those things you didn't know you needed. It has everything for everything you need to be faithful and obedient to God. It has everything for everything. 
That's what God's work is like, word is like. And it's an amazing gift to us. God gave his word so that you might be saved by Christ and so that you might become like Christ. Christian, you can be confident that everything you need for life in this world is in this book. And so, as we conclude, I want to encourage you to rejoice afresh in God's gift of Scripture. He has given us an authoritative word about Christ so that we might be Christ-like. Allow me to close with an ode to the Bible. Uh, The author of this ode is anonymous, but I suspect that it's some beloved Puritan. He writes, The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. And practice it to be holy. The Bible contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, its designed, and the glory of God its end. Amen. Praise God that he has given us his authoritative word about the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of our salvation, so that we might grow into his image.